While we were marching through Georgia, everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low. The Alaman left for the old left hand, around the ring you go. A grand old right to left walk on your heel and toe. Promenade that pretty gal to Georgia. Let's start with a poem. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting, or being lied about, don't deal in lies. Or being hated, don't give way to hating, and yet don't look too good, nor talk too wise. Of course, that's If by Rudyard Kipling. Governor Eugene Talmadge once stated that he only needed three books on his desk in order to govern properly. The Bible, the State Auditor's Report, and that poem. That quote shows three sides to Talmadge's personality. His deep religious beliefs, belief in a thrifty government, and individualism. Of course, there is one more side. Talmadge was a firm believer in white supremacy and felt it was the governor's duty to enforce it. This is Moving Through Georgia, and this week we're talking about Eugene Talmadge. Talmadge was born in 1884, only nine years after the end of the Civil War, in a state still affected by Reconstruction. He was raised on a farm and attended the University of Georgia, then the UGA Law School. He spent some time in law practice and spent a little time teaching. Then he got married and settled on a farm in Telfair County. He ran for Commissioner of Agriculture after a few failed runs for the state legislature, and it was there that he found his platform and his voice. Talmadge began by firing the inspectors in the department that had been appointed by the previous commissioner. Lawsuits were filed, and inspectors that refused to clear out their offices were cleared out of their offices by friends from Telfair County. The new commissioner ignored the lawsuits and was eventually sentenced to a year in jail for contempt of court. An appeal to the state Supreme Court voided that sentence and resulted in the other suits brought against him being tossed out. Talmadge was definitely an up-and-comer, who did things his way. The department published a regular newspaper called the Market Bulletin and Talmadge often gave advice to farmers on ways to improve their crops and attitudes. In one column, he reminisces about sitting at the country store and playing checkers during the long and sometimes idle winter months, but realizes that I never did get much profit from that. His constant self-promotion, combined with the failure of a scheme to raise the price of Georgia hogs, put him at odds with the legislature. Again, lawsuits were filed, and impeachment proceedings were begun against him. Some political maneuvering, backed by fiery letters of support and very loud rallies, brought those efforts to an end. When the governor chose to run for a newly vacant U.S. Senate seat, Talmadge made his move. He knew he had strong support among the rural counties of Georgia, but not so much in the cities. If land could vote, Eugene Talmadge would have walked easily into the governor's mansion, and in a way, that's exactly what happened. The election laws of 1917 ensured that rural counties had a stranglehold on state politics. 
It was called the County Unit System. There were 159 counties in Georgia. Each county had at least two county unit votes. There were a total of 410 in the entire state. I'm taking this description of the system from a book called The Bosses by Alfred Steinberg. It's a good one and you can find it online. To win, Talmadge needed 206 county unit votes. Well, luckily, 121 small rural counties had two votes each. The next 30 larger counties had four votes each, and the most populous eight counties boasted six votes each. So, Eccles County, with a population of 2,600, had two county unit votes, while Fulton County had six votes for 400,000 people. One person's vote in Eccles County equaled 51 votes in Fulton. Add a few other factors. Blacks couldn't vote in all primaries, and the poll tax discouraged blacks and the very poor from voting. In rural counties, it was common for people to fill out their ballots in the open, with neighbors and candidates looking on. There were a few people running for governor, but Talmadge focused on scooping up those rural county unit votes in those counties where, as he put it, the streetcars didn't run. How did he do that? Well, license plates. Farmers were constantly complaining about the cost of automobile tags, which could run up to $13 at the time. While some Georgians were avoiding the revenuers, most were dodging the tag catcher. Farmers would borrow their neighbor's tag to drive to town, and in places like Elijay, the entire community might share one communal tag. The license plate was hung on a nail outside the general store, so anyone who needed to drive where a missing tag might be noticed could use it for the day and then return it for someone else's use. Huge crowds attended rallies where Talmadge swore to lower the price of car tags to $3. As an example, 1,800 people attended a Talmadge rally in Homer, county seat of Banks County. Of course, he made other campaign promises, mostly involving taxes, but he will always be remembered for the $3 tag. Talmadge won the primary, and since he would have been running unopposed, he became governor-elect of Georgia. Now, the legislature faced a problem. Most of the budget to build and maintain roads throughout the state had come from the tag fee, and no one could agree on a bill that would virtually defund the highway department. Now keep in mind that this also includes trucking and cab companies. Since heavy trucks caused more wear and tear on Georgia roads, they would pay more to register their vehicles, but not under a $3 tag program. As soon as the General Assembly closed, Talmadge used his executive powers to fix the price of a tag at $3. He had faced down the legislature and a few judges to deliver on a campaign promise. Farmers could now drive wherever they wanted on the state's poorly maintained dirt roads. The Highway Commission refused to accept their new slashed budget. Talmadge simply declared an emergency and ordered the National Guard to remove the commissioners from their offices 
than he appointed their successors. He basically ruled through executive order and by having those who opposed his policies fired and forcibly removed. When 60,000 mill workers went on strike to demand recognition of their union, better pay, and restrictions on night work for women and children, the governor sent state troops to one mill to ensure those who chose not to strike could go to work. The next day, he declared martial law and dispatched 4,000 National Guard troops to the largest mills. Picketers were arrested and held behind barbed wire at unused military bases in Atlanta. He railed against federal interference in Georgia, the intrusion of Washington, D.C. to impose such things as federal child labor laws or public housing authorities to regulate slum housing. Those were rejected by the governor and the legislature. He did support poor workers by limiting taxes and worked to balance the state budget. What really got him mad was Franklin Roosevelt. Talmadge saw Roosevelt's New Deal as a plan to deliver well-paying jobs to black workers in the state, and he fought them until 1934 when the Roosevelt administration took away Talmadge's authority to run relief programs in Georgia. Despite the fact that the New Deal was gaining popularity in the South, Talmadge won re-election easily, riding on the $3 tag. The state constitution didn't allow more than two consecutive terms, so after leaving the governor's post, he set his eyes on the United States Senate. Two attempts ended in failure, however, and in 1940, he won a third, two-year term as governor. At this point, as the governor's attitude towards segregation was more or less a given, he was approached by a woman named Scylla Hamilton who alleged that Dean Walter Cocking of the University of Georgia had proposed the establishment of a school in which education majors would practice teaching and which would accept both white and black children in the same classes. After supposedly stating her disagreement with this idea, Hamilton was removed from her post as a teacher and placed in a secretarial position. Talmadge stated that he resented the treatment of Mrs. Hamilton and demanded that the Board of Regents dismiss Dean Cocking, as he would dismiss from the university anyone who advocated communism or racial equality. The president of the college threatened to resign if Cocking were dismissed without a hearing, and after a five-hour hearing, he was reinstated. To Talmadge, this was a struggle between Hamilton, born and raised in Georgia and the daughter of a Confederate colonel who had been removed from her post for expressing outrage at the mention of school integration, and a northern-born professor espousing northern ideas in Georgia. Board of Regents members were called upon to resign, investigations were opened into non-Georgians in the university system, and the Assistant Attorney General vowed to audit the university's libraries to remove anything that spoke out against American ideals. Read that as Georgia ideals. Those regents who were called upon to quit refused, and amid some legal wrangling, another hearing on Dean Cocking was called. Some odd things happen here. Apparently, a government official had attempted to bribe a commercial photographer to fake a photograph of Dean Cocking in the company of some black people, which 
you know, evidence that he was in favor of racial equality. A member of Cocking's household staff was actually abducted and offered money to steal some papers written by black teachers that may have been in the house. And as we go to Cocking's second hearing, here comes another digression. It's the Rosenwald Fund. Quickly, it was a philanthropic institution that donated money with the stated purpose of the well-being of mankind. Many of these funds went to build schools and health programs for blacks and to support civil rights activists. UGA did accept and use some Rosenwald Fund money. The president of the fund had written a book entitled Brown America in which he stated that blacks and whites were inherently equal. Even though Cocking wasn't involved with spending Rosenwald Fund money, the accusation was made that Cocking must support the idea of racial equality due to his association with the Rosenwald Fund. Let's do that one more time. Cocking wasn't associated with the Rosenwald Fund, but he was fired because of his association with the Rosenwald Fund. Some of Cocking's supporters tried to recall the witnesses from the previous hearing who had testified that Cocking never even broached the subject of racial equality at the meeting, but this was not allowed. So essentially, he was fired for his association with a fund he was not associated with, combined with some comments that people had testified he never made at a public meeting. In response, in 1941, the Southern Association of Schools and Colleges removed its accreditation from 10 Georgia colleges, citing the governor's interference in the state's educational policy. In his bid for re-election, Talmadge stood against Ellis Arnold. Arnold promised to re-accredit the schools and separate them from the governorship, while Talmadge denounced blacks and anyone who spoke out against Jim Crow laws. In the end, Arnold took the governor's mansion. After his four-year term, Talmadge's time was to come again. There was a new state constitution. All right, as a, another digression here. As of today, there have been 10 state constitutions in the state of Georgia. In 1945, Talmadge's successor brought into being a new state constitution that lowered the voting age to 18, introduced literacy tests for potential voters, made school segregation state law, and capped the number of counties in Georgia at 159. It also changed the governor's term from two to four years. And with the new constitution, Talmadge was technically eligible for another term. Just a side note, by 1976, the Georgia Constitution would be the longest in the nation with 831 amendments. That would be simplified with a new state constitution in 1983. So, Talmadge ran again in 1945, focusing on his pledge to fight against the rising tide of integration throughout the country. It was a hard-fought battle. And he actually lost the popular vote, but the county unit system he always counted on came through, and he was the governor again. He was 62, with a liver condition that was giving him trouble. He would die in December before taking office. 
And as we come near a close, I want to remind you that Moving Through Georgia is a Georgia history podcast that mostly focuses on Northeast Georgia. If you have any questions, comments, or complaints, please, we'd love to hear from you at movingthroughgeorgia at gmail.com. And even though we're done with the story of Eugene Talmadge, we're not done. Yes, Talmadge has died, but there is a new constitution in Georgia, and there is a new elected position, lieutenant governor. With the governor-elect gone, the new lieutenant governor would claim to be the next governor. But the old governor won't let go. Just to make it interesting, Herman Talmadge, Eugene's son, would also claim to be governor. There will be fighting, the state militia and the National Guard will both be deployed against each other, but who will be governor? That's the way we do it down in Georgia. Everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low. The yellow man left for the old left hand, around the ring you go. A grand old right left walk on your heel and toe. From an deputy gal to Georgia. That's all.